Welcome to the Wander Learn Podcast. I'm your host, Francis Tapon. In this episode, I have Susan Alcorn, who has hiked the Camino de Santiago de Compostela 16 times via nine different routes. She's also written two books about El Camino and written four books total about hiking. We spend most of the conversation talking about El Camino Primitivo and El Camino del Norte, but we talk about all sorts of other things, like what's some of the unusual paths that she's taken, how did she experience 9-11, has she ever camped on the trail, how many pilgrims actually go on the Camino Santiago every year, what percentage are actually doing it for religious reasons, and what advice she would give to first-time pilgrims for El Camino Santiago. This show is sponsored by Tour Radar. They are sponsoring an amazing contest for WanderLearn listeners. All you got to do is go to tourradar.com slash WanderLearn for your chance to win this amazing travel contest. Check it out. One more thing. There's a little bit of background noise. Occasionally during our conversation, we're sitting outside in California while we were recording this face-to-face. So forgive a little bit of the noise. Enjoy the show. We've done nine different uh, routes of the Camino de Santiago. Uh, actually gone back to do some of them um, maybe over a three-year period. So as far as going to do Camino hikes about uh, 15, 16 times. Have you ever done it backwards? Have not walked back home, no. No, in other, in other <laughs> words, start in, Cami- in Compostela, right, in, in Santiago, the, the final destination, and then actually walk to France or something like that. No, a, f- a few people do that. Occasionally you'll meet someone on the trail who is going... You know, going the other way, the signage, of course, is more challenging. But in uh, the early days of pilgrimage, people, of course, had to do it both ways. They had to walk to Santiago and right. walk back home. Right, and that's exactly right. I mean, there was no plane. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Back then. <laughs> you could take the mule back, I suppose. <laughs> walk there, take the mule back. But it, it was it was harder. Um, what was the most unusual of all the different journeys that you took that was kind of mo- the most off-the-beaten path because that path is the el camino de france camino frances is really beaten i mean that one is well known and 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 been trodden quite a bit but you've taken some ones that are less well known yes well before i go on to the other the other trails and the greater difficulty of many of them we actually were on the camino frances for 9 11 so if you're talking about interesting experiences, that was one. That was in 2001, and at that time, you know, nobody had cell phones or Internet connection, very much Internet connection. So getting the news, even at that relatively recent date, was a, was a challenge. How did you find out? We were sitting in a bar at lunchtime. and Where? So, in, uh, where oh roughly? Well, and in the uh, middle of the trail? About a third of the way across. Okay. And uh, we were having lunch, and all of a sudden it got very quiet. We looked at the TV, which is omnipresent in the bars, and we were and we were seeing fire. And since that was September, we assumed, living in the West, that there were fires. They were talking about Washington, that there were fires in Washington State. But then we were seeing the Twin Towers and weird things happening, and slowly, you know, it dawned on us what was happening on, what was, you know, going on. Wow, that must have been. And then, for me, I was hiking the Appalachian Trail at the time, so it was also in a kind of primitive setting where I found out six hours after the attacks when it happened. I guess you must have found it out a few hours later. 
aftermath probably as well. Yeah, I don't, I don't really know what the time lapse wasn't very much, but we still didn't know the details. And of course, we didn't have access to computers easily, and we can't read Spanish that well, so even the newspapers that came out later didn't have much info. And it wasn't until a couple of days later that we were able to get to a library with a computer and, you know, really find out what was going on. Wow. Amazing. Um, now, you wrote this book, Healing Miles, Gifts from the Caminos, Norte and Primitivo. Tell us a little bit about what the book is about, because it's when I hear that, I think, okay, those are the unusual. Everybody talks about El Camino Santiago as if there's one trail, and... That's completely false. There's a thousand trails. And some of the more popular ones, the, the most popular one is the Camino Frances, but then the El Norte and Primitivo, they're two separate trails? Right, they are. The Frances, of course, is the most popular. Uh, then the route out of Portugal, the Porto, starting at Porto, is the second. And then, How long is that one? That's pretty short, I imagine. That's, yeah, that's just a couple hundred miles. Well, it depends okay. on where you start, actually. I thought you, if you not. start in Porto. We started in Porto, but the requirement to get your Compostelle, your certificate of completion, is just the last 100, 100 kilometers. Right, right. So a lot of people start closer in. Right. The, uh, the Norte is the third most popular but it only has about 10% of the traffic that the Francais does. And the Primitivo is basically the fourth most used of the trails. Okay. And the Norte and the Primitivo, um, many people start them at the same point in Irún, which is on the French-Spanish border, and go along until there is a place where the Primitivo uh, kicks, you know, starts hitting south. But a lot of people continue along the coast on the Norte. So the Norte, if you do the whole thing from Maroon into Santiago, is about 500 miles. The Primitivo, if you do just that section starting near uh, Oviado, is about 220 miles. What kind of hiker or pilgrim would be best suited for El Norte versus El Primitivo, those two? They both eventually go through mountainous territory, but the Primitivo stays higher longer. I would say, I wouldn't say that one is much difficult, more difficult than the other. I mean, I guess the Primitivo would be, but to me it's just a matter of, um, you know, it's still a matter of step by step, and I didn't find either one of them extremely challenging as far as elevation was concerned. But what about amenities? Does, uh, primitivo sounds like primitive, so therefore maybe they don't have as many amenities along the route. Actually, the Primitivo is named that because it was the first of the Camino Trails. At the time that the pilgrimage started to Santiago, most of Spain was still controlled by the Moors. And if you look at the terrain, there's a range of mountains basically north of the Bay of Biscay. And they kind of formed a natural barrier from what was going on to the south. Uh, where the Moors still controlled. So the, the uh, Moors never really got as far north as the Primitivo. And there was a, um, a king of Asturias who, who, really wanted, who really favored the Primitivo route, establishing a way that people could get down to Santiago without having to deal with you know, the, um, any of the fighting that was going on elsewhere. So it was kind of protected. Anyway, that really was the first of the trails that started. 
hence the Primitivo. As far as accommodations. So they really uh, should have called it El Primero, not Primitivo. They, <laughs> true, maybe so. <laughs> primitivo in Spanish means primitive. And so the Primero is primary or first, right? But anyway, so what do I know about marketing? Uh, so, so anyway, so that's fascinating. I didn't know that the Primitivo was the original one and El Camino Frances. I always assumed El Camino Frances because it's the most popular. I thought that was the original, but it came after once the Moors had kind of been pushed back a bit. Right. Well, uh, there, there came out, a, gu- a guide came out not too long after the Primitivo started, which really told people more about the other routes. And so they just sort of went on to the other, um, what's known as the Francais today. Right. Okay, great. And then uh, what is some, I've only done, I haven't even done the whole thing, El Francés, because I took a turn into Los Picos de Europa and La Cantabrica, whatever that thing is called, Asturias, up in the north, kind of like in those mountainous areas, kind of made my own route. But so I don't really know the, the Primitivo and El Norte. My question was, is there a section in the, or a, a major section in those places where the trail narrows to a traditional trail like one meter wide, like you would see on the Pacific Crest Trail or the Appalachian Trail, these kind of narrow or or, or in other places? Or does it stay kind of wide where two people can comfortably sit side by side where you could practically drive a car through as El Camino Frances was when I saw it, at least? Mm -hmm. The trails, uh, people often complain about the amount of road walking that you have to do on the Norte in particular, and that's that's a fact. In particular, as you're starting, you are going through Basque Country. You're going through major cities in Spain. You're going through San Sebastian, Bilbao, Guernica, which are uh, beautiful, Santander. beautiful cities. Yeah. Um, loved it, but a lot of the time you are road walking. Now wait, there's two types of road walking. There's that's true <laughs> asphalt, and then there's dirt. That's true. Um, a lot of it is asphalt, okay. but I also say. Even when you're walking on a highway, it's generally a secondary highway, not a major one. Right. And there's often, you know how along a road there will be kind of a dirt area that's sort of worn a little easier on the foot than walking along the road. But indeed, you are on asphalt a fair amount of the time. I can't really give you percentages, but I know that uh, my feet certainly noticed it. More than half the time? people do comment on it. More than half the time? I would say more than half the time. Okay, and this yeah. is for the El, El Norte. The Norte. What about... El Primitivo, which you said was a bit more mountainous. The Primitivo, I don't know what the percentages are, but you still are doing some road walking. Okay. But just when you get tired of that, you'll find a place where you indeed are going, you know, solo up some hill or through some muddy stretches. A single file trail? Or yes. A, okay. Yes. Okay. So that's where you can find a single file trail if that's what you're right. looking for. But more you're gonna have it. to you're gonna have to endure still some road walking as well. If I mean, endure for those who don't like it. Other people love road walking because then they can just step aside and have a caf- coffee or have a right. nice, uh, you know, empanada or whatever they're serving right. up there. Well, that is also one of the differences between the Norte and Primitivo compared to the Francais. It does not have the same infrastructure that the Francais does. So there are not pop-up coffee kiosks like you're going to find as you get closer to Santiago I on remember the I, I remember I passed this little village and I found like a soda machine. 
Like, <laughs> pop in a couple of euros and get your soda can. Woohoo! <laughs> yes, we actually, on the Primitivo, found a place where there there wasn't a shop or restaurant in town, but there was a little shelter of some sort, and they had all kinds of vending machines. They had some picnic tables. You could even buy your scallop shell if you hadn't already gotten one. So, yeah, but then that is sort of the history of the Camino also. I mean, there, the merchants, vendors supported the people that were walking the trail. So it, it's always had this commercial side. Of course, yeah. I mean, in the Appalachian Trail also, there's a whole infrastructure that's been built up around the Appalachian Trail exactly. as of these last few decades as the trail itself became more popular. And the Pacific Crest Trail, ever since the book Wild came out, has also seen an explosion of interest as well. So, And then what does that do? That attracts businesses, which is all natural. They're, they're coexisting. I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with them. There's pros and cons. Uh, with such development, but uh, when what about there's a trail I saw once that left out of Salamanca in Spain. I don't know if you've ever done that one. I saw one on a map. I don't know if you're familiar. Left with out it. of Salamanca, Salamanca, Spain. That one. I don't know all the, the names of all the different ones. We mm. did do a southern route that came out of out of out of the out of Granada. Oh, Granada. Okay. And okay. that's the Mazarab, and people okay. jump on that at different places. When people talk about El Camino, they're always talking about Saint Jean Saint Jean Pied du Port, which is in France, just on the border of Spain, on the other side of the Pyrenees, and they can call that El Camino. But really, you can start anywhere you feel like it. And some people start in Jerusalem, for God's sake. True. Um, and so, the the what was the furthest it you started? Was it around the Pyrenees, or did you ever start like? In Le Puy, or well, out of French, come four major routes, starting at the north in Paris, then Vézelay, Le Puy, and Arles. And actually, the Le Puy route can be started back in Geneva, and we have done that. We have started in Geneva, walked to Le Puy, also walked from Le Puy all the way and cross into into Spain. So that probably would be the longest if you were to connect, you know, the whole thing as one. But all those routes out of France are still about 500 miles. And now for a quick commercial break from our sponsor. Do you want to take a life-changing travel adventure, but you either hate planning or you don't know where to start? Tour Radar is a trusted online marketplace that helps you find, compare, and book multi-day tours that will expand your horizons through life enriching travel experiences. Just type in a region you've always wanted to visit or your preferred travel style and Tour Radar will do the rest. And right now, WanderLearn listeners can visit Tour Radar for a chance to win an amazing travel contest. Every month, there's a new contest. Enter to win at tourradar.com slash wanderlearn. And now back to the show. So Susan, what percentage of the people who are pilgrims are actual kind of religious pilgrims versus quote unquote spiritual people or people who don't really, I mean, true Catholics, I guess, or at least Christian, like real, that's, they would say, I'm doing it for Christian reasons, not for quote-unquote spiritual reasons. What would you say? According to the Pilgrim Office in Santiago, when people come in to get their Compostela, and they answer various questions, and in 2018, 43% of the people said it was for religious reasons, 48 said it was for a combination of religious and cultural reasons. So that, you know, that's 9% for cultural. Wow, that's amazing. But how you define religious? Yeah, no, but, you know, but, that's but, but that's, I mean, stop and think about that. Here's a religious pilgrimage. 
Because, in fact, I just got an, another... About every week I get an angry person writing about my article, El Camino de Santiago Sucks. Some angry message I get from some pilgrim. And he says... And the last one I just got a couple of days ago was somebody yelling at me saying, you know, this is not a hike. It's a pilgrimage. It's a religious pilgrimage. And I said, like, well, you know, maybe for you, but maybe not for everybody. And now that I'm armed with this wonderful ammunition that actually the religious people are a minority, for God's sakes. <laughs> right. It's really how, how you define it. Uh, but me, I mean, defined by themselves, by the hikers exactly. themselves, the pilgrims themselves, 43% are doing it for religious reason. That's a minority. Right. Which is, which is stunning. I mean, compared to, let's say, if you had interviewed people five centuries ago. <laughs> Probably it would have been 99%. Well, then there would have been the people back then who were trying to do it in lieu of going to prison. Or those that well, did that's it why to I get did their it. sins forgiven. I, I, I did it for not going to prison. I was just <laughs> running away. The cops were constantly behind me. Why do you think I went to the mountains? <laughs> as far as why I do it, uh, we do it, my husband and I do it, because it, it's just always, it's always different whatever trail you're on. We love the land. We love the food. We love the people. You know, there's a lot of the cultural experience. And also there are great areas of uh, natural beauty. So it just keeps drawing us back. And in part because we know that it's going to be a, a somewhat different experience each time. I we, love statistics. So I'm just curious. about. Yeah, I'm looking over your shoulder and looking at these uh, other statistics you wrote down. What, are, what does this mean? Can you ex- explain to me these numbers here? Oh, the percentage? No, no. This, you said a total. Is this 327,000? Oh, in 2018? That's how many people, 327,378 people came into the Pilgrim office and presented their comp. No, you know, their, that can't be that said high. they had done it. More than a quarter True. of a million? But no. they aren't all starting back in St. John 500 miles away. Sure, of course not. But, but it, would, are they all coming for a Compostela? Yes. Really? Yeah, what? They're, they're checking in. Yeah. No. Yeah. And not everybody does. You know, not everybody. Of course, goes and some people does don't that. want to even wait in line. They're That's like, right. they, I, I, I walked away from Germany, but forget it. I don't feel like waiting two hours to get my compostela. Thank you very much. Actually, yeah, it's a huge number, and it's no. really growing. No. Leaps and bounds. Three hundred twenty-seven thousand people in one year? Yes. Trying to get a Compostela? Yeah. And recently I've been seeing things online, haven't confirmed it, but like a thousand people a day are showing up at the Pilgrim office. Well, it has to, to be. Get There's 365 days a year, and and therefore if you got three, I, I, I just, I can't believe that. Yeah, but not, the same amount are not doing it in January that are doing no, it I in understand. September. So therefore <laughs> you've got to have like days when you have 2,000 people sitting exactly. in line. Exactly. I mean, really. This is yeah. crazy. I hope God's listening because... <laughs> <laughs> There's a sure a lot of people who are going there. Okay, and then this is the percentage of people. 56% take El Camino Frances. Mm-hmm. And how many percentage take El Norte? 5.82%. Okay, and, and Primitivo? 4.59%. So roughly 5 each for 5% in El Norte, 5% Primitivo, and just over half take El Frances. And then obviously about 40% or so are taking other methods to get there, other trails, mm-hmm. other other mm-hmm. paths to get to Santiago. There, there is a website, the office of, uh, the Pilgrim Office in Santiago. I mean, you can Google Pilgrim Office in Santiago and find all kinds of wonderful statistics. It comes on in Spanish, of course, but you can translate and look up whatever you want. So you can find out 
you know, what the age difference, what the age brackets are, male, female, which is actually pretty much even 50%. Yeah. Um, and I imagine age-wise, where I mean, they where they're starting from, mm. what country they're from, all that kind of thing. Lots of wonderful statistics. It's a super there. diverse trail. Yes. I mean, I don't think of any trail, long-distance trail, that is more diverse than El Camino de Santiago. Period. I mean, Appalachian Trail, you name it. Uh, walking in the Pyrenees, nothing matches the diversity of pilgrims as El Camino. You've got. All sorts of nationalities, all sorts of languages, all sorts of age groups, because it's easy enough that even people who are in their 80s can do it. I mean, if they really want to, right? Mm-hmm. You've got bikers, you've got hikers, you've got people doing it for religious reasons, non-religious reasons. It, that, I think, is the number one reason to go. And by the way, that's the main, one of my main points of my article about El Camino, which kind of criticized it, was simply that, you know, you want to go there for the, the cultural, the people reasons, more than you're going to go out to some wilderness hike. Because wilderness, at least from El Camino Frances, it seemed limited. But that's why I was so curious also to talk about you, is how much more wilderness you get from the, from the other trails. I imagine El Norte and Primitivo, even though they have a fair amount of road walking, they still enter in, it feels a bit more rustic. Am I right? Or? It, it does, especially when you turn, for example, from the Norte and leave the coast of Bay of Biscay and that, those incredible beaches along the way, many of which are secluded and great and nobody there. So Can that's you camp great. on them without a problem? Or is um, that not legal? It's not legal. Really? Okay. It's not legal. Okay. few people do it, but it's pretty much, um, well, it is illegal. Do you always stay in hostels yourself or do you sometimes camp in the wild, outside? We've never camped in our in the wild. Okay. A couple of times we've taken a very lightweight tent in case the distances are more than I can do comfortably. Or what but about we've if never you, had to use it? Really? And so you've never been kicked, like not kicked out of, but in other words, not been admitted into a place because all the hostels are full. No, we have never been albergues, kicked out. Albergues, as they've they become they've, the albergues have become more crowded, so people are running into more problems, but it really depends on, you know, what day of the week it is, uh, who happens to be traveling through there at a given time, whether or not you're going to find a place. I mean, on Facebook, you'll see people saying, no problem. Other people are saying, it was really hard. But I Um, imagine, Susan, you have the luxury of being able to go slightly off-season, not at the peak, correct? Right. You've never actually tried to hike these trails right in the middle of July and August, which is, I think, the peak, right? Well, in Spain, as in much of Europe, they get these huge long vacation times. So August is really vacation time for the Spaniards right. and the beaches along the northern part of Spain are really popular. So there, like in Bilbao, um, San Sebastian and so on, for accommodations, it isn't other pilgrims. It's the people on vacation. Right. The, the, be- the beaches spaces. are really the ones who are taking the most spaces in, yeah. in, in Norte. But I guess if you would want to go... You'd want to go not in July and August because also hiking in July and August is freaking hot yes. in northern Spain or anywhere in Spain, actually. Yes. It's especially in the lowlands by the beaches. Boy, it's got to be 40 degrees Celsius or mm-hmm. more. Mm-hmm. I mean, crazy. So we go April, May, partway into June, depending, or September, October. That's brilliant. No, so think... the weather's the best. It's not as crowded. Yeah. Um, 
Have you ever yeah. gone in the dead of winter where you're dealing with snow up in the Pyrenees? No, no okay. I have not. Okay. You got to try uh, that, Susan. <laughs> 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 no, but what is your next big, uh, I assume you're going to eventually go back or, or are you kind of like, I've done every single inch of this northern route in Spain? Well, we've done all of that Norte and Primitivo. So in recent years, we've been back on another trail in France, the Vézelay route. And we have another 130 miles of that before we'll reach the St. John Pierre de Port again. Okay. After oh, that, you want to go back and do that section? Oh, yes. Okay. Oh, yes. So what happened? You, you, you did a section of it and then you said, okay, we'll come back next year or whatever? Actually, this will be the fourth trip because we've had limited time each the last four years when we've gone over there. Okay. I'm sorry, it'd be the yeah the fourth time. So we, each time we've been there, we've done like 120 miles, something like that, 125. Okay. So we have another stretch to do. So we'll do that. Okay. And then, what advice would you give to budding pilgrims, people who've never done El Camino Santiago? You get asked this all the time, I'm sure. So um, besides buying your book, Healing Miles, uh, where, but this is not really a guidebook necessarily, or is it? Is it like a blow-by-blow, blow, like stay at this hostel? or? Healing Miles is actually a combination. I always keep a journal while we're traveling, and then I come home and do a lot of research, trying to find out more about the culture and the history and that kind of thing. And I also do an extensive, probably the third half, third half, third part of the book, is more of a practical how to pack for okay. an extended trip, um, how to find out information if you are one of those that wants to have your luggage transported, which you can do on the Francais easily. Although we call that slack packing. Is that what's the word? Well, uh, they don't use that term. Right. But <laughs> what, what do they call it? In America, I mean, that's what we would call that on the Appalachian Trail or, you know, a slack packing where you basically leave most of your gear and somebody takes it forward for the next stop for the day. And then you just can go with a water bottle, basically, and some snacks. I think that would be, uh, what's the word, politically incorrect in some communal circles because people are very... Adamant about uh, about hike your own hike and don't be judgmental about no, no, whether there's, no, there's nothing there's not no. a slack packing is not a at least in my ears it's not a derogatory term I mean I guess some people might hear it that way but it's not like you're a slacker it's just that you're I guess maybe that's where it came from but anyway I've never heard of it as a as like oh you god you're slack packing people just say it with pride they're like I'm gonna be slack packing this section I'm like okay. I understand. It's not it's not a term that I've heard used on the Camino okay. routes, but there are occasionally comments from people about how it's superior to carry everything versus others who are like, you know, whatever you have to do or want to do, that's your own business. Let's touch on some of your other books, Susan. You've written some other ones. Tell us about them. The hiking books I've written were first We're in the Mountains, Not Over the Hill, Tales and Tips from Seasoned Women Backpackers. And that was because at the time that I was doing the John Muir Trail, I wasn't seeing other people of my age. I was over 45. So I thought, well, they've got to be out there. I'm not that exceptional. <laughs> so I started interviewing women, and I put together that first book, telling about people's experiences. And then that led to... The next book was the Camino Chronicle book, which was about the Francaise route. And then I wrote a book about Patagonia when we did 
the circle root in Taurus de Pine. And then this most recent one, Healing Miles, is about the Norte and Primitivo. And there, these last three have been a combination of my journals, uh, history and culture that I've learned more about, the practical information. And it's really about um, supporting, encouraging, making people realize that, you know, this is doable, as you said, if you're lucky anyway, into at least your 80s. Uh, I'm 78 now, and I don't see that I have to stop doing this at all. Yeah, it's amazing. You're 78, and you're. when did you first start doing this? At what age? I first started backpacking when I was 48 to do the John Muir Trail, and then went on to do all the Pacific Crest Trail in sections. The first Camino was 2001, which... So I was 60 at the time. Wow. So you got, you're kind of a late bloomer, but you've bloomed quite nicely. <laughs> That's <laughs> Thank amazing. You. Yes. If people want to find out more about you, Susan, where should they go? We have a website, backpack45.com. Why is it 45? Is that one? Because when I did the We're in the Mountains book, I primarily interviewed women 45 of age and older. I didn't see why there weren't more people out there backpacking, and I thought... You know, it's doable. And have you seen a transformation on the trail where all of a sudden now women are out there in force? That's sort of complicated because it, because now I'm sort of part of the hiking community, so I know people <laughs> of all kinds of ages doing it. Uh, and there's obviously a lot more ways to find out what's going on with all the different um, websites and Facebook and all that kind of thing. So I kind of know who the who the players are now. Um, but I think there are. I think the percentage, in fact, I read a few years back that the number of women doing the John Muir Trail at one point was slightly higher uh, than, for the women men? than men. Wow. I don't know if that goes back and forth. But right. as on the Camino, it's pretty even as yeah. to who does it. So you have seen a transformation to some extent from when you started. It wasn't 50-50, El Camino. I think that, well, on El Camino. I don't know that, I think the Camino, yes, I think the Camino has um, has more evened out than mm-hmm. it was originally. There's a lot of old-timers, and I mean that not just in age, people who've done something for, let's say, they might be 30 years old, but their mentality is old-timers, because when I started when I was 20, it wasn't like this, and now all of a sudden it's so commercialized and overgrown and so many tourists, I hate it! You know, they're 30 years old, but they're old timers as far as their mentality, in my opinion. But uh, do you at the same time lament and like, is there a part of you that's an old timer that says, oh, God, it was so much better back then and then it is now. And that's kind of forced you to look at these alternative routes. When I did the Francais in 2001, uh, I had no idea there were all these other routes. But like any any hiker knows once you do a trail and start talking to people you find out my gosh for everyone I've checked off there are <laughs> hundreds more <laughs> so it really expands your horizons yeah. and um, so my normal thing is not to go back and do the same trail wherever I happen to be I want to do different ones I want to see different things I feel very comfortable traveling in France and Spain and Portugal and you know wherever else and so I wouldn't keep doing the same trail uh, just because it's in my nature to want to try different trails. As far as going back onto the Francais, when we when you end the Norte or the Primitivo, you run into the Francais before you get to Santiago. Sure. So you are back there in the most crowded part right. of the Francais. Right. But we knew that going in. Right. So it's going to be a different mood. It's like, okay, whatever. Yeah. 
and the capacity that they must have is 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 astounding in order mm. to, to to deal with all the people who want to just do 100 kilometers and get their compostela exactly well susan it's been an absolute pleasure you're an inspiration to many including myself i think i salute you for all the, the hiking you've done not just on El Camino and not just in Spain but throughout the world so thank you again I hope people uh, will learn more about you and buy your books I appreciate it thank you for your inspiration thank you it's been wonderful <laughs> and that concludes this episode of the Wander Learn podcast where we explore travel technology and transformation if you'd like to see the show notes with links to what we talked about or if you'd like to comment on the show or if you'd like to ask me a question then go to wanderlearn.com and click on this episode Tour Radar sponsored this episode and is also sponsoring an amazing travel contest for the WanderLearn audience. Every month, enter to win a new Tour Radar contest for a chance to win a life-changing travel adventure. To toss your name into the hat, just go to tourradar.com slash wanderlearn. If you'd like to connect with me, just remember FTAPON. That's my first initial and my last name. FTAPON is the username I use on all social media. You can also get to my website by going to ftapon.com. And here's one more reason to remember FTAPON. If you like what I do and would like to get rewarded for supporting my projects, then go to patreon.com slash FTAPON. That's where you can pick up some remarkable rewards for as little as $2 a month. And now, five quick favors. Number one, subscribe to the WanderLearn podcast. Two, don't forget to download it. Three, share it. Four, review it. And then five, sign up for my newsletter at wanderlearn.com. Our theme music was composed by Eric Stratman. This is France Tapon encouraging you to wander and learn.